This is Deep Dive. I'm Fei Fei. Over 20 years ago, during a Palestinian uprising, Israel started to build a barrier to separate its territory from the West Bank. At that time, Israel said it was only a temporary measure to ensure the safety of the Israeli people. Today, the barrier consists of towering concrete walls surrounding main cities and barbed wire fencing in rural areas. Notably, many sections are inside the occupied West Bank, carving off nearly 10% of its territory. In some way, the separation barrier has become a visualization of how Israel and Palestine see each other. If you have enabled the elevated snakes, what do you, what do, you do? You make a fence. We are not animals. No, we have mind, we can't think. We are tired in this open-air prison, but there's no solution. It's not about uh, uh, giving the Palestinians uh, the authority of the West Bank. From what we see, even before uh, October 7th, they kind of like don't, don't want us here. Is the barrier doing its job providing security? Then why would Palestinians call the West Bank an open-air prison? And will the barrier ever be demolished? For this, I sat down with my colleague Huang Yue, who traveled between the West Bank and Israel last month. This episode is brought to you on Wednesday, December the 20th. So you traveled all the way to Israel to report the conflict. But why didn't yes. you go to Gaza, where you know all the other reporters have been reporting and going to since the conflict broke out? Why did you decide to go to the West Bank instead? You know, when the conflict escalated for reporters, everybody wants to go to Gaza, which is the center of the conflict. But you have to understand that since Hamas suddenly attacked Israel on October the 7th, Israel immediately retaliated and all the border crossings have been closed, meaning no one can cross the border between Israel and Gaza. Not us, not other international media, not international organization staff, not anyone. And also the Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza. People might have heard a lot of times about this name in other reports when talking about humanitarian aids. That crossing, or let's say that gate, has also been closed. So only those correspondents who have been inside Gaza before October the 7th can still report from the enclave. And since we cannot go to Gaza, we decided to go to the West Bank, which is the de facto Palestinian Authority, even though it's not recognized as a sovereign state so far. We traveled between Israel and the West Bank so that we can have voices from both sides to tell the stories from both sides. About, you know, the relationship between the West Bank and Israel and also Gaza, can you tell us more about their relationships? Yes, if you look at the world map, you will find that in the Middle East, there is a landlocked territory bordered by Israel to the west, north and south, and by the Jordan River to the east. And that's also how it gets its name, the West Bank, meaning it's the west bank of the Jordan River. So for decades, the West Bank has been a focal point of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Israel captured the West Bank from Jordan during the Six-Day War, 
or the Third Arab-Israel War in 1967, and has since maintained control over this region. The Israeli government considers the West Bank to be the disputed territory, while uh, Palestinians say it's part of their future independent state. Although the West Bank is not recognized as a, a sovereign state so far, it's been considered by many countries and the international organization as the Palestinian territory. And Palestinian president's office, ministries are all set in the West Bank city of Ramallah. And the relationship between Israel and the West Bank is so complicated and controversial. Israel has established settlements in the West Bank, uh, which are considered uh, to be illegal under international law. These settlements have been a major obstacle to peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine. Well, Gaza, on the other hand, is a, a small coastal territory located to the southwest of Israel. It's now governed by Hamas, which is the Islamist political organization. Israel maintains a blockade on Gaza, controlling its borders, airspace, and access to the sea. And this also answers the question of why we cannot go to Gaza, like you just asked, because Israel controls everything there. Once Israel closes the access, you cannot enter Gaza. So the relationship between Israel and Gaza has been marked by frequent conflicts, and Israeli troops have conducted several uh, military operations in Gaza, citing security concerns due to rocket attacks and other acts of violence originating from the territory. And how did you travel across the West Bank and Israel, especially after the conflict between Israel and Gaza broke out? Uh, so basically, uh, we were based in Israel. So for us foreigners, it's not very difficult to go to the West Bank. You just drive and pass the checkpoints showing your passports and then you can go. But there is a thing. Our driver is an Israeli citizen. Israeli citizens are banned from entering the West Bank. Or to be more specific, they are banned from entering some specific areas of the West Bank. So another important thing you need to know is that the West Bank has been divided into three administrative parts known as areas A, B, and C. So these divisions were established as part of the Oslo Accords, which is a series of agreements between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization in the 1990s. So Area A is where the Palestinian Authority has full civil and security control. Area B consists of areas where the Palestinian Authority has civil control, but Israel retains security control. While Area C constitutes the majority of the West Bank and is under full Israeli civil and security control. So this includes Israeli settlements, uh, military bases, and nature reserves. So for us foreigners, there's no big difference here. But for our Israeli driver, he can never cross the border and enter Area A, where we actually went to visit for a lot of times. Every time we would find another driver from the West Bank cities we went to, our Israeli driver would send us to the border, stopped somewhere on the roadside, and then we got off the car with our equipment, walked across the border, and then the Palestinian driver would pick up us from the other side. And after we finished, we went back to the same border point, and our Israeli driver would wait there to pick up us. Well, it's, it's a bit difficult for me to comprehend, you know, all the process. 
and and yes. what the border looked like is it a legit port where you go through no. customs and people check your passports? No. no, it's not like that. What you described is kind of like the official border, official checkpoints. But after October the seventh, the Hamas surprise attack, these official checkpoints have been closed. So the border point we stopped by is just like some stones with the chains to stop people. So you can just only walk. Through the very narrow gap, and speaking of the quote-unquote border between the West Bank and Israel, there is a sort of a landmark architecture setting on the border. is really tall wall. Did you、mm-hmm. travel across that wall, or did you manage to visit the wall? So you know, driving in Israel, there is this kind of structure, like you mentioned, the Israel West Bank wall, the Israel West Bank barrier. This is the infrastructure that you cannot ignore because when you drive on the road, you can see that from time to time. That's one of the most famous walls in the world. It's now over seven hundred kilometer long, eight meter high. Zigzagging across the land in the West Bank, not along the Green Line drawn in 1967, but inside the West Bank. So that's why it's so controversial. It's been designated as illegal, violating the international law, by the International Court of Justice in 2004. But still, after 20 years since Israel started to construct this kind of wall in 2002, it's still there. Why did they decide to build it? It's a long story, but I'll try to make it as simple,、uh, as short, and as clear as possible. You know, in June two thousand and two, Israel started to build this separation wall. That was at the height of the Second Palestinian Intifada, when、uh, conflicts, chaos intensified, and at that time, Israel was facing frequent suicide bombings and other attacks. So, the Israeli government decided to build a concrete wall like this between Israel and the West Bank to stop what Israel called unauthorized individuals, including the potential terrorists, from entering. So, this wall is also called a security. Barrier by Israelis, and then you went across that "quote unquote"、yep. border and over、yes. to the Palestinian Authority-governed、yes. part of territory. What do Palestinians from the other side think of this barrier? Yeah, you know, for us foreigners, we don't really need a permit to travel to West Bank or to Israel. But for Palestinians living in the West Bank, it's very difficult for them to travel between the West Bank and Israel, or to the East Jerusalem, which is also a disputed area、uh, that Palestinians consider belonging to them, and. Things have become more complicated since October the seventh because, like we just talked, many checkpoints have been closed. They even face difficulties traveling within the West Bank. I mean, between the West Bank cities because those checkpoints have been closed. That they need to make a detour. And speaking of、um, the travel permit, I talked to a Palestinian young man whose name is Rakan. He works at a souvenir shop in Bethlehem. A popular tourist city in the West Bank, it's known as as the birthplace of Jesus Christ. The young man told me that first of all, the permit is very expensive. This permission it's a limited, limited. It means just for a few days 
22 days and it's uh, from 5 a.m. until 7 p.m. We have to pay 2,500 shekel for each 22 days. That's around 650 U.S. dollars. This young man who graduated from university about two years ago, he, he told me that 2,500 shekels means one and a half month salary. And now since the Israel-Gaza conflict, there's no tourism at all in Bethlehem. So he might not secure his job, not to mention the salary. And even if he could afford this amount of money every 22 days, he still couldn't get it because he's a single young man. He said that Israel wouldn't issue travel permit to single young men. But I can't get the permission because they say, or they ask us to marry the girl and then they get baby or a child uh, to let us get this permission because they are thinking if we have a family, we cannot do anything wrong inside Jerusalem. And also, you know, there is a blacklist system. If you did something bad, you had this kind of record, uh, you wouldn't get this permit. Your family members wouldn't get that either. It's kind of like a very strict background check. But I was also told that before October the 7th, there are many Palestinians who work in Israel and for them, it's their companies or their employers who help them to solve this permit issue. And it must be very inconvenient for them. Absolutely. You know, frankly speaking, Israel has better medical education resources, we have to admit it. But before the escalation of the tension, those who manage to travel between the two sides in whatever way they can, now they cannot. For example, I also talked to a 77-year-old elderly woman. She tried very hard to apply for a travel permit to Jerusalem because she needed knee surgery. She failed to obtain that kind of permit, so she had to turn to the hospital in the West Bank. Um, she told me the surgery was not very successful. She had one already, and she, she's supposed to have another one, but she doesn't want to because it's too painful. And actually, this lady's case also explains what we just talked about, the blacklist system. One of her sons uh, was shot dead in 1988 by Israeli soldiers during a protest. He was at the church and the soldiers were always there. People started to protest and Iyad went with his friends. Then the soldiers started to shoot at them. They used dumb dumb bullets which exploded inside his body. That was during the first Palestinian Intifada. I was told that her son was one of the first two Palestinian Christians who died in the uprising. So his death kind of caused a stir at that time. Because of her son's incidents, she was on the blacklist for many, many years, until recent years, because she has become too old and the Israeli government thinks she wouldn't pose any threat anymore. And during all these years, she couldn't go to Jerusalem, even though she used to work there for 15 years. I used to see my daughter in Jerusalem, but since they put up the wall, they haven't let me in. That's one of the many cases in the West Bank. And as you mentioned, a lot of Palestinians actually work or manage to find a job on the Israeli side. Um, I'm curious about their situation there. Do they have to return back to the West Bank? 
all the travel permit have been revoked, so they have returned to West Bank. In addition to the travel permit, the security screenings for the travelers have also become a lot stricter. So. Currently, it's almost impossible for most Palestinians to travel across the border to Israel. So, currently in the West Bank, the West Bank is more like what they called an open air prison. People living inside face lots of challenges. I remember when I was in Ramallah, people told me that they were buying basic essentials because of fear of a shortage. And some street vendors also said they couldn't get as many food supplies as before because of the cutoff of transportation. And some living in remote villages said they were exposed to more dangers because Israeli settlers would block the way, and they there were violences. And those, like you mentioned, those who used to work in Israel now they are totally unemployed. I also talked to the deputy minister of labor of Palestine, and he told me that there were at least five thousand laborers displaced from their work in Israel, and these people were added to the labor market in the West Bank. They were fully unemployed because the unemployment in the West Bank is also very high. In two thousand and twenty-two, the number of employed Palestinians in the West Bank was a six hundred and fifty-five thousand, and nearly thirty percent of them work in Israel or Israeli settlements. Most of them work in construction, manufacturing, and agriculture. So, on the other hand, Israel is also facing problems since these Palestinian laborers couldn't come. And what's the Israeli situation look like now after you know the conflict broke out? So first of all, the general situation in Israel is、um, much better than Gaza, than the West Bank. But in many areas, like the construction, the manufacturing, the agriculture, in these fields, they are short-handed because before October the seventh, many laborers working in these areas they are from either from Gaza or from the West Bank or from foreign countries, like the agriculture. I went to talk to some. Farmers near the border with Gaza, and they told me that before October the seventh, most of their、uh, laborers were from Thailand or from Gaza. But now, since the escalation of the tension, some hostages taken by Hamas or from Thailand, so people left, and the Gazan people. They were either detained in some military facility near the West Bank by Israel after the Hamas attack, or they were detained by Israel in prison. So they cannot hire any more laborers to work for them. They are now relying on the volunteers to help them. Is the wall able to provide security to Israelis, as it aims to do? This is not a simple yes or no question. If you look at the number of suicide attacks before and after the wall,、uh, the barrier, whatever you call it, was constructed,、uh, the answer seems to be yes. It prevented terrorists, reduced attacks, and brought safety to Israel. I read an essay written by an Israeli expert on counterterrorism. His name is Yoram Schweizer. And according to his study of suicide attacks on Israel conducted by Palestinians between 2000 and 2009 during the Second Palestinian Intifada, when it started in 2000, the number of suicide attacks was four. In 2001, the number rose to 35, and in 2002, the suicide attacks reached the highest, 53 in total. Well, in 2003, the number dropped sharply to 26. 
In 2004, there were 12, and in 2005, there were eight. So from these numbers, it might look like the barrier successfully prevented suicide attacks, but the numbers don't tell the whole story. Another very important reason that cannot be ignored is that in 2004, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat died, and Mahmoud Abbas took office, and a new leader opposed armed struggle and started to cooperate with Israel on security matters, and Israeli troops began to operate in all parts of the West Bank. Meaning those attack plans could be smashed up before they were implemented. So you can see that true security requires modern, actionable military intelligence and even cooperation with the other side. And you have to understand that the wall is not finished yet. There are still many gaps. And before October the seventh, many Palestinians crossed the border via those gaps illegally. Sometimes even in view of those soldiers and cameras. So if these people could easily cross the wall, how could you say the wall can effectively prevent potential suicide bombers? And if the wall is only about security, like Israel claimed, why would Israel allow those gaps? So how are the Palestinians seeing the wall? Today, what do they think of it? For Palestinians, they say this is a barrier to peace. This is kind of like a racial segregation. They don't believe this is a wall to stop terrorists. They think this is a, like a punishment to all Palestinians that Israel created the open air prison for Palestinians living in West Bank. Apart from this wall, is there other options that may look like a solution? To the rivalry or the conflict that Israel and Palestine constantly have for decades. Yeah, when we talk about the solution to end the Israel-Palestine conflict, we always mention the two-state solution. Actually, in nineteen forty-seven, the UN General Assembly formally proposed this kind of two-state solution as part of the UN Partition Plan for Palestine, which envisions the establishment of an independent and sovereign state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. And actually, the two-state solution gained prom. After the Six Day War in 1967, when Israel gained control of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem, this event significantly impacted the territorial dynamics and discussions surrounding the potential establishment of、uh, separate Israeli and Palestinian states. And also,、uh, in 1993, the Oslo Accords. In the Oslo Accords, Israel accepted the Palestine Liberation Organization as the Palestinians' representation,、uh, while the Palestine Liberation Organization recognized Israel's right to a peaceful existence, and the two sides agreed that the Palestinian Authority would take governing responsibilities in the West Bank and in Gaza. This created some hopes of a roadmap towards two states. And negotiations between the parties involve addressing key issues such as borders, settlements, Jerusalem, refugees, and security arrangements. And the goal is to achieve a lasting and comprehensive peace agreement that respects the rights and aspirations of both peoples. But so far, the two-state solution is still in the talks, in the works, and haven't been realized. What are the challenges or the obstacles lying ahead 
for the two sides to be able to sit down and have a talk and really set the two states. There are so many challenges ahead, such as the territory disputes. You know, Israel and Palestine have disagreements over borders, settlements, and the status of Jerusalem, the holy city, always the important thing. And both sides have、um, their own security concerns, including the fear of violence and terrorism. And they also have、uh, disagreements addressing the rights and status of、uh, Palestinian refugees. And also, different public opinions and deep-rooted historical and religious narratives are also obstacles. And in fact, from the very beginning, the Oslo Accords were not widely welcomed in the Palestinian territory and were opposed by segments of the Israeli right. You know, attacks initiated by、uh, radical Palestinian groups. As well as、uh, right-wing Israeli leaders' refusal to collaborate with the Palestinian Liberation Organization had fueled further distrust in the peace process. In November 1995, Rabin,、uh, the former Prime Minister of Israel, who signed the peace accords with、uh, Arafat, was assassinated by an Israeli、uh, extremist. So, in the meantime, continued settlement activity and the breakdown of the Camp David negotiations in two thousand contributed to the downfall of the peace process. You know, I remember I talked to a retired IDF colonel. I asked him, "Does he believe in the two-state solution, or can he imagine what will the solution be like?" And he said, perhaps both sides don't like the current situation, but in the past seventy-five years, they haven't found another better choice. And he also said, maybe in the far, far future, the separation wall, the security fence, whatever you call it, this wall might be demolished, and the two-state solution was finally implemented. And that would definitely be a history-making moment, but he didn't believe he would observe that in his life. Last week, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It also calls for the release of all hostages and ensuring the safe passage of humanitarian aid into Gaza. At the same time, Lynn Hastings. A UN humanitarian coordinator highlighted the rise of violence and poverty in the West Bank amid the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Deep Dive. If you like what you just heard, don't forget to follow us on your podcast platform. Just search for Deep Dive. You can also leave comments to tell us what you want to know about China and the rest of the world. This episode is brought to you by me, Fei Fei, and my colleagues Zhang Zhang and Qi Zhi. Special thanks to CGTN reporter Huang Yue. I'll see you in the next one.